Hello, and welcome to this first October edition of Podularity, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller, and my guest this week is philosopher Mark Vernon, who's just published a book on well-being in a new series he edited for Acumen Publishing. The series is called The Art of Living, and it tackles such big subjects as work, illness, sex, sport, and pets. We came round to the question of why well-being and not happiness later in the interview, but I began by asking Mark to tell me more about the aims of the whole series. I think what we're trying to do in the series is return to something which was certainly important at the origins of Western philosophy and has continued throughout but maybe has got rather marginalised more recently. And that is the idea that philosophy, well for one thing it springs from life and experience but also it tries to address and reflect upon life and experience as well. If you turn back to Socrates, you know, I think he became a philosopher because he wanted to live a better life. He wanted to ask the big questions of life. And whilst he was certainly a rigorous thinker and did a lot of analysis and probing, that wasn't an end in itself. The end was in order to try and live the good life. So if there's a, a comparison between applied maths and pure maths, you're sort of on the applied end of philosophy rather than the pure end. Yeah, and I think also what we're trying to do with the series is there's maybe a gap between sort of full-blown academic philosophy, um, which is, you know, very brilliant often and and engaged in a lot of rigour, and the self-help market, which high-end self-help is not bad, actually. Uh, I don't want to knock it all, but of course there is a lot of uh, rather nebulous, uh, woolly kind of self-help as well. And so if there is this gap between academic philosophy and between self-help, then maybe books like these can help to fill that. Did you have a shopping list of titles when you set the series up or did they spring from conversations you had with, with authors? What we try to do with the series is make them immediate. If, if the philosophy is supposed to be the kind of philosophy anyone can read, then we wanted to convey that uh, through the titles and through the look of the books. Um, and so we decided very early on we wanted to go for these one-word titles. And we decided we wanted to try and go for titles that people could immediately relate to. They would have some sense of, I know something about that, but I'd like to think about it and learn a little bit more. So we try to avoid titles which carry a lot of resonance in academic philosophy, you know, like a title like Freedom. Now, Freedom is very important, but it's kind of done very well within academic philosophy. And so instead, go for titles like Work, like Wellbeing, like Hunger, like Pets, the more unusual ones, Deception, another one. With the idea, I suppose, that a bit like you can write a poem about anything, you could do some philosophy about pretty much anything as well. Yes, I was intrigued because, as you say, you cover, I suppose, fundamental things like hunger and sex and work. But then you get these less usual subjects like pets and sport and so on that you might not necessarily expect to find in a, in a let's say, a, an academic series on, on the art of living. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. And all the authors do have some kind of philosophical training. And the way that philosophy sort of blurs into cultural studies on the one hand and into psychology on the other kind of opens up the subjects a little bit. But also I think all the titles, in fact, do relate to books or sources that the big-time philosophers will have written about. So, for example, you know, Montaigne f- famously talks about his cat and asks the question, is his cat playing with him when he's playing with his cat in one of his essays? Um, so the, 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 it's not so unusual if you look back through history, in fact. But there aren't very many contemporary models, which I suppose is, is a great advantage for the series because you're not saying 
do as a book like like that pre-existing book you want them you want your authors to do something fresh and, and different yeah another thing which we're trying to do is encourage people to write essays you know rather than introductions that kind of survey the scene or they're not monographs that try and push at a particular point to develop something completely new you know with full references and so on again valuable as those two activities are but these are essays and the idea of an essay i think is that someone's a bit freer to reflect on their personal experience and on their kind of professional knowledge and try and synthesize the two and take some risks, you know, uh, try and be a bit polemical, try and be a bit entertaining and try and push their own thought in a way that, you know, anyone might enjoy. Now, if we come round to the book that you've contributed to the series, it's on well-being. And I suppose my first reaction on seeing it, apart from greatly admiring the cover, which is a very uh, clever uh, spirit level with a bubble perfectly in the middle, is to think that behind the decision to write on well-being is obviously another decision not to write on happiness because there are so many books on happiness and perhaps that in in a sense is a, a reason in itself to not to write another book on happiness but say a little bit about how you decided to make your title in the series on well-being rather than happiness the title is well-being and not happiness for the very good reason that i think if you read the great philosophers of happiness particularly people like john stuart mill they all say that if you pursue happiness directly there's one thing you can be sure of which is not actually becoming happy happiness if you like is a byproduct of life if you ask yourself am i happy um, you very quickly realize that you're asking yourself am i living a good life um, is my life going well is you know my life one of well-being so i think trying to draw the attention to well-being and the kind of the moral and the uh, the wider connotations that that has rather than the idea of happiness which for all that people try and stretch it does really refer to pleasure and emotional highs and lows, I think, in the way, in the way that people use it. And it's hard to shake that off. Mm. So what I'm trying to do is sort of shake off the happiness. One, one of the, if there's a bit of advice in my book, it might be actually forget happiness and you might actually be a whole lot happier. And as you say, happiness tends to get debased into some sort of, you know, immediate self-gratification. But I suppose the risk with well-being is that it, well, I suppose there's a potential for it to get debased into a sort of purely material state of, of basic satisfaction and no more than that. And I think in the book you mention the supplements that fall out of your Sunday newspaper and it's got lots of emphasis on well-being, but that basically is a sort of form of corporeal health. So there's, a, there's obviously a risk, you know, both, both happiness and well-being can go off in the wrong direction, as it were, for, from, from the point of view of what you want to write about. I'm certainly hoping that well-being is a slightly more less well-defined kind of idea if you say well-being people have some idea about that and as you say there's lots of newspapers that have well-being sections that focus on you know getting a tan or having a diet or uh, and sometimes more spiritual kind of elements as well but that trying to work a bit at what well-being might mean just being unfamiliar with the word I mean it's not even clear quite how you spell well-being whether it's one word or a word with a hyphen and so that's a way of that's an opportunity if you like to try and think a little bit harder about what well-being might actually be there's even a linguistic you refer to the linguistic complications of well-being because you can't say I suppose you can say I have you can't say I have well-being or I, I am in a state of well-being so there's, there's already some kind of sort of distance between the self and this notion of well-being isn't there I think so, and also I try and use that as an opportunity to refer back to some of the older words for happiness, and in particular um, the word that Aristotle uses, eudaimonia, um, which is often just translated as happiness, but actually carries a whole lot of meanings which can get lost in the word happiness. And in fact, uh, I really feel that 
although Aristotle does talk about pleasure and that pleasure is an important part of any human life, again, it's a kind of a byproduct. If you go for pleasure, then you're probably going to find it slipping through your fingers. And whereas if you go for what he referred to as eudaimonia, which is something about the life lives well in the round, then you're, you know, you're more like pleasure will follow. You mentioned Aristotle, and it seemed to me that the Greeks provide quite a lot of nourishment to your argument. They're, they're quite a fertile source for what you want to discuss, the way that they thought about life and its purpose and how to achieve well-being. Really, my, the kind of hero of the book is Plato, and I'm trying to uh, revisit Plato's arguments. Interestingly, Plato didn't write so much about happiness, but he was very interested in the good. And I guess Plato's little bit of self-help advice would be today is not, you know, don't ask yourself, are you happy? Don't um, ask yourself even whether what you're doing is right or wrong. Um, am I becoming a good person? Although he, he thought these things were all important, but he thought the fundamental question to ask yourself was, you know, what do you love? And the reason for that is that what you love if you can work out what you love, because it's often quite difficult to work out what you really love, um, but if you can work out what you really love, then that'll be the thing that you give yourself to. And this business of giving yourself to something, in Plato's idea, is the heart of well-being. I wondered as I read the book whether well-being, a necessary component of well-being is maturity. And I wondered, from the way that you construct the argument, whether you know, you, you talk about relationships and love and the, the, the sort of cycles that, that they go through. And I wondered if you felt whether well-being is, is perhaps something that a 20-year-old w- would, would never set as a, as a goal for him or herself and it has to come through lived experience and understanding, or is, is, that, is that too reductive or confining? No, I think there's a lot in that. Certainly for Aristotle, he thought you couldn't really ask yourself, yourself had you had a happy life until you're on your deathbed and you could see the whole of your life. And part of that was that it's only through life that the wisdom kind of arises to really live well. He talks about practical intelligence. And in fact, he thought that practical intelligence was more important than theoretical intelligence. When you read a book, you're mostly doing theoretical intelligence. And that's kind of important because it might set you in the right direction. But it's, it's worthless unless you can actually convert into a life. And similarly with Plato, um, there's a very strong sense that wisdom is something you see rather than something you kind of work out in your head. And you might then try and communicate it in words and in philosophical argument, but it's ultimately it's a process of discernment and seeing life more and more subtly. Uh, and he th- again, he thought that it was love that drew that process. Love has this capacity to draw you towards something you don't fully understand. And also, in, when you love something, you want to participate in it. You don't just want to sort of study it objectively. And I think that's where he thought life should lead. No, we mentioned the Greek tradition, but it also seemed to me that the Eastern tradition loomed large in your argument, to the extent that at one point, you, I think you say, but hold on, I'm not going to advocate that the answer is to become a Buddhist, but can you say a little bit about how, because that, that seemed to me a way in which your book differed from other, you know, more academic treatments of, of the question of happiness, that you allowed it to be nourished by traditions that were non-Western. I have to confess, I don't know a whole lot about Buddhism, but uh, the bit that I have tried to study and indeed practice to a degree is um, it, it appeals to me because the emphasis is in fact on practice. You know, there are discussions that go on and there are theories that you can kind of examine. Um, but at the end of the day, they understand very clearly that unless it's making a difference in your life, it's not really worth it. And so the Buddhist ideas, I hope, are a way perhaps of opening up the Platonic ideas, again, the ideas which you get from Plato's dialogues and pushing that emphasis back on the practice. And I think it's there in Plato, and in fact, personally, I find Plato's ideas more immediate than Buddhist ideas, which do come 
sort of through a filter of Eastern mysticism and so on, which I, I find uh, difficult to know what to make of often. But in the sense that, uh, you know, Plato wrote dialogues, for example, and dialogues are about real characters engaging, and they engage kind of body, mind, and spirit. You know, they have emotions in Plato's dialogues. And it does seem that often when Plato's dialogues are, are read in the West today, they're read as if they were kind of philosophical treaties. People kind of abstract the kind of philosophical nuggets, as they might say, out of them. And they forget that actually this, these, they convey lives being live, lived and lives trying to be deepened. And so Buddhism is perhaps a way of just kind of opening that up again in Plato. Let me ask you finally, if writing this book had any impact on the way you live your own life? I mean, I know your writing in general is a sort of reflection, a sort of severable reflection on, on life and how to live it, but writing this particular book on well-being, has that, has that led you to think or live your own life differently? I think it has to a degree. I, I do try and, when I write a book, I do try and make it a kind of work, not just, again, a kind of objective work because I think a question is worth asking although I do think these questions are worth asking but do try and write it so that it makes a difference to me just before I started writing this book I met somebody in Hong Kong I, I talk about this in the book and um, he just struck me very much as someone who worked out how to live um, in the sense that he lived in the way um, that what he loved resonated together he lived a rather simple life and in fact I was rather wary when I first met him because he'd spent a lot of time on the hippie trail and my rational antennae were very alert to all that but I met him and uh, I felt there was a kind of an integrity or a, a synthesis that he managed to achieve um, and so when I was writing the book I was very much trying to think you know what is what I'm writing and arguing about what difference does that make to me and if part of the benefit of philosophy is to just discern through different ideas and to draw your attention um, to different ideas and you know if being enlightened is to have your focus you know a bit more tuned seeing things more subtly and so on then you know the book has certainly done something of that for me and now it's going into the world to do the same for readers let's hope so i was talking to mark vernon about his new book called simply well-being which is out now in paperback if you've enjoyed this podcast and i hope you have you can subscribe free by typing podularity into the search box on itunes that way New episodes will download automatically to your computer. For the moment, thank you for listening, and until next time, goodbye.